Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creative Connections. Today, I'm joined by writer-director Tommy Murphy. Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. It's great. Uh, so let's dive straight in. You've written uh, plays, screenplays, and teleplays. Did storytelling come naturally to you as, as, a, as a kid? I think I was always drawn to it. Um, there was an early experience in, I think, year two, I'd invented this character and uh, was using story time at school to write this story about a superhero. And um, I was really proud when it caught on and other kids started using that character. And my school teacher was excellent because he even um, taught us, I remember, about drafting and uh, there was these these stages with script, no, with, with story conferencing and, uh, and redrafting and then making it published. And it kind of matched matches what I do now uh, professionally. But I remember that experience mostly because when the other kids started using my character, um, that teacher then banned it because it was uh, dominating story time too much. Oh, right. And I remember being outraged by that. Uh, I felt censored. And something of that entire experience uh, was very formative uh, for the young me. Yeah, right. So has that experience with censorship stayed with you? You know, not really. Maybe I'm not being daring enough. I haven't carried the experience of censorship into my professional life enough. Um, that said, I've had some walkouts in the theatre more than once. Um, oh, right. I've never shied away from sexual content, uh, particularly gay content. So uh, I've sometimes called minor stirs, I think. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And <laughs> writing tends to be quite a solitary craft is that something that fits well with your personality or has that been a bit of a challenge probably not i think i've had to learn to be good with solitude and i do value my solitude now particularly professionally but no i think like a lot of playwrights unlike i imagine novelists or maybe even visual artists uh, i think playwrights are drawn to that uh, because we like the the community experience of what we do we like the fact that uh, we're in, um, uh, you know, a community building for the immediate reception of the work. Um, my beginnings were as a playwright. I'm sure that community experience is what I got hooked on, sort of the thrill of that. But also the community experience of building the work. Um, mm. And that's, that's certainly the part that I enjoy most about screenwriting now particularly working in television, it's the collaboration, the writer's rooms, the time with your producer. It's those collaborative parts of the job that I like most. Uh, But out of the discipline of the job, I've had to train myself to be very good with the solitude part of it. You see, I'm from a big family. I'm one of eight kids. So I'm very used to noise. And and, uh, even now in my household, I like it when my flatmates are home. I like it when someone's working alongside me or the times that I've had a residency, I really value sort of trying to catch the productivity of the person next to me. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And I mean, because we've heard, well, I've heard of artists, you know, possibly complaining about a lack of inspiration or an absence of a muse. Right. Is writer's block a real thing? I don't think so. I say optimistically, I think writer's block would be a failure of process. Mm-hmm. Because there's necessarily times of, um, you know, searching for an idea and being patient for that. Uh, but normally you have a few in the queue 
So there's always something you can work on, I think. Um, and, uh, and it's right to sort of set something aside and, and look, look away from it for a moment to investigate another idea, emerge, submerge yourself in another project before you then come back with fresh eyes to something. So once you can get the rhythms of that uh, set, that would combat anything that we would call um, writer's block, I think. Mm. And so is part of that being okay with maybe not making progress in one area, but another? Well, that's probably, yeah, that's probably one of the more difficult parts of being a, a disciplined writer, I think, is, is, uh, is that it is unpredictable uh, uh, the pace at which something will move um, and that can be for factors of your own inspiration but also the more industrial factors of how things get made. Um, you can't always plan ahead with the rhythms of your year uh, and that can be very challenging. Uh, the, the particularly challenging parts I find um, as, a, as a writer is those joins in between projects so that if you have one thing that, you know, you're waiting for notes on something and suddenly you've got a spare month because uh, it can be that long or longer yeah, yeah. and you want to delve into that other project that is waiting for you, um, the joins in between are very difficult because inevitably you're still in that deep work mode of the other project and all of your ideas are going to be about that. It becomes a very fertile time for the project you've just been forced to leave behind. So I've learned just to keep that notebook open for the mm. other project and to know that the joins in between can be a, can be a kind of week-long process or more trying to then, you know, delve back into the other project. Once you know those rhythms, you then try to structure your work as much as you can, knowing um, that, that that's part of the process. Mm. And other times uh, during the day that work better for you or have you just structured your work in a way that fits, fits with everything? I used to um, work late at night and still, I guess, if there is a deadline approaching, I, I might enjoy doing that. Uh, but I try to be pretty strict with myself. I try to work a, 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 a you know, conventional sort of almost nine to five kind mm. of with my writing just so that I fit um, alongside all of the other people that uh, are important in my life, that I've got time to, you know, go to the theatre at night or, or, or out to the cinema. And, and uh, do you remember when we used to be able to do that? Far out. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. just wild. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for, for family and relationships and things, I think it's better to try to sit in that, um, in that conventional um, structure of the day. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because otherwise it's taking over your whole life and yeah. you know, you want to have yeah. relationships and see your family and yeah. do other things. So that, yeah. that completely makes sense. Yeah. Um, and creatively, you also just need to know the downtime that you're going to have, even though that can still be fertile. You can still have a notepad by the bed or whatever, but I think I've learned more and more the sort of important psychological breaks between closing closing the door on work literally kind of you know making a ceremony of shutting down the computer closing the door of the study and saying mm -hmm. work lives in there and for the moment it's switched off and i can come back to it tomorrow um i think behaving like that professionally is um more sustainable yeah and you adapted Holding the Man by yep. uh, Timothy Connor Grave into a play, which that was first stage in 2006, became a huge success, 
both in Australia and England. What did that whole experience teach you about yourself and your craft? Oh, a great deal. I mean, in some ways with an adaptation, there's this feeling or even a wish that you're collaborating with the original writer. And, and in, in that case, Timothy Conagrave uh, was dead and I was never going to meet him. But in the process of researching that play uh, and of, of trying to get an understanding on his perspective and his voice, there was a process of feeling as though I had met uh, Timothy Conagrave, both in becoming a, an expert as I needed to be in his life and times, but also um, coming to know him deeply as a colleague, uh, as, a, as a fellow writer. So I think if it shaped me as a writer, it was uh, learning from Tim and Tim's great strength was as uh, a truth teller. That book is testament to somebody who was very fearless in, um, in telling life, uh, telling, telling about his life as he saw it. Uh, and um, many of the people that I interviewed when I spoke to uh, friends and family of Tim would say to me, sometimes in a hushed tone, that, you know, Tommy, you should know Tim could be a bit difficult or Tim could be a bit of a bastard and various ways they would say it to me. And it was always clear. I always knew that. The fact that Tim could be tough, cutting, sometimes a bit of a prick. Uh, that was why we had this extraordinary memoir mm. that was so ahead of its time and so valuable as a document uh, of an extraordinary moment of history and uh, an extraordinary love and life, lives that were lived. Mm. And, and that was also adapted into a film by, by yourself. Yes, yeah. Was, was, that yeah. A, was there a big difference in the process there or was it, pretty easy to move There was, to particularly in the pace of it. I mean, that play was written in about 18 months and, uh, and then staged. And the, the film, I think, in total took about eight years uh, pursuing it, raising money. Um, uh, I was then joined by uh, a wonderful producer, Kylie Dufresne at Goalpost Pictures, and eventually Neil Armfield, our director, joined the project. And it's a long time of, uh, of, of moving towards production. Um, so that, that in itself is a big, is a big, big difference. Um, the time that goes into script development, um, and, um, and then the task is just so different across those eight years. I sought out more and more screenwriting work. I, I, I worked on television miniseries and an episode of television and tried to get my skills up as a screenwriter to be, to be able to then, um, write that screen, you know, work on that film. And so was the main reason that that was, that process took so long, was that a funding thing or was yeah, that a combination of factors? Yeah. yeah, we had to raise, we had to raise the money. Um, and some of that came via a, a sort of angel investor or uh, someone who became one of our executive producers, a man named Cameron Huang, who had seen the play at the Opera House. Mm -hmm. and, um, and just approached me and said that he thought it should be a film and I'd, I'd already begun work on it. So he joined very early on in the process. Um, but then we, even with that generosity, there's still a lot, of, a lot more money and partnerships um, to make before, before the film would be on screen. And you have written uh, other plays based on real-life events such as Mark Colvin's Kidney and Packer and Sons. Are yeah. there more challenges when writing something based on real life? Yes, absolutely. There's the, the sort of ethical challenge of it. 
um, there there is the, the responsibility of uh, wanting to tell the truth, but also to respect people's privacy. Um, there is the very real, uh, you know, duty to not defame people. Um, and then there is the uh, the management that goes into dealing with real people and how they might want to be included in the process uh, or might take umbrage uh, or, and try to restrict what is being said. And across those works that you've mentioned, I've had a, an array of experiences um, finding some people who are very happy and, and sort of honoured that their story uh, matters enough that someone would want to tell the story. There are people who are very brave and welcome a warts and all portrayal. And there are other people, unnamed, who uh, work to um, uh, prevent, you know, how yeah. much they might want to say. And they do that for reasons of, um, I think, sometimes ego, but also um, pr you know, protecting uncomfortable truths. Mm. And is there a process to getting permission for those kind of things? Or can you pretty much just get started and you get permissions along the way? Or can you kind of do whatever you want? The best way to approach it is to have people included in the process as much as possible. The times that I think I've succeeded in doing this in the best way, I've, I've, I've more or less um, partnered with people in a way, like included them in even in explain to them, you know, where I am in the drafting of it or explain to them my approach in the storytelling and even ask their advice about that at times. Um, and... I think that's the best way. It's not always possible. Like in telling James Packer's story, mm -hmm. I really couldn't get access to him for various reasons, but James Packer had, uh, at the time that I might have approached him, um, had very bravely revealed publicly um, that he was battling with some mental health problems and that really did close the door at the time that I could approach him. Uh, and then, you know, at other times you're weighing up whether the approach in itself might be problematic because, you know, knocking on someone's door might prompt them to shut down the project and try and restrict you. Um, mm. So there's a lot of things to, to weigh up. And across those projects, I've had a lot of varying experiences of it. Um, but I've got to say I've really enjoyed that process. I've really enjoyed, um, you know, the sort of, I know I would say journalistic. I know I'm not a journalist because I'm not um, bound by the same ethics, you know, same sort of code of conduct as a journalist. Because frankly, as a as a dramatist, you are allowed to make things up a little bit, so yeah. long as they are truthful, if not true, if we can make that distinction. Um, but um, and so long as they're not defamatory. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating process, which I which I really enjoy. And I'm even in a even in a what presents as a fictional work, you really are to a certain extent still drawing on the truths around you and the lives around you. Um, so I'm sort of just fascinated by that. Um, yeah, by by to what extent something is is true or truthful. Yeah. Mm. And so with a play like Packer and Sons where do you start? I mean, well, how does that even come to you? Like, you know what? I really, I'm going to write a play about this. Well, with Packer and Sons, it was a notion about um, fathers and sons was always the idea. I always wanted to, to tell the story of those three generations 
of powerful of a powerful patriarchy mm-hmm. um, to tell a story about exactly that about fatherhood and 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 um, the impulse for me came after my father was you know ailing and approaching his death and uh, I was reflecting on that very good example of fatherhood that I had benefited from mm-hmm. and I was looking towards a kind of horror story of the opposite uh, of a cycle of patriarchal bullying uh, and a sort of damaging uh, fathering that that stemmed across three generations and has repercussions for our country because of their relationship with power that you know the the grandfather father and son of the packers had such sway over governments for Mm. more than a century here in sydney um so it felt like just a high stakes version uh of a story about fathers and sons that's what i was drawn to now back in 2005 strangers in between was produced yeah was that a pretty big moment for you as a writer in your career yeah absolutely it was it was a very very pleasurable experience i was at griffin theater which uh is still a a theater that is dedicated to new australian writing so i was 24 i became part of their um resident playwrights um project at that time Mm -hmm. and because it's a theater company dedicated to new writing there's a very real opportunity that once you're in the door there that they're going to develop works that will go on the stage Mm -hmm. um that's a really great thing for a young playwright uh there was a lot of trust but also um a lot of um a lot of training as well like i really feel that the things that i learned there have stayed with me and i was very proud of that play that felt that it was drawn from true life but was also Um, invented characters that I fell in love with. Um, And I love that play because it's both gentle, but also I feel scene by scene, there's um, a a satisfying emotional battle. I feel like the play manages to be both uh, tender, but conflict rich. And um, in many ways, I'm always striving to write a play like that because I was really proud of that one. Are there ways in which you can observe your writings changed since then? Yeah, or, sometimes. Or your approach or? I think sometimes it's got worse. Like I think sometimes yeah, right. my, I, I don't know. Thinking I too much like or? Pardon? Like th- overthinking it or? Um, look, I think that as an artist, you have to make bold experiments and sometimes those experiments don't work. I don't mm. think I've ever put on a play uh, on stage that was lacking because of less of, lack of effort. Um, I think that I've always tried really hard and, and always benefited from um, some wonderful collaborations. And I think everyone involved has always worked really hard. But I can think of some projects that just didn't quite land the way we wanted them to. Um, and it wasn't that they felt unfinished. It was just that they were difficult to finish, you know? Like it just it just was that every new play has to... Um, be a new invention. I think that's what we want of theatre. We kind of ask that of playwrights, that not only will it be, it might be tackling something um, that, that is a universal theme that we're familiar with, that's been wrestled with before, but the way that it's um, dealt with, I think we, we want each play to do something new with the theatrical form, uh, sometimes very gently, but sometimes radically, um, and that task is difficult. And I think as I've become um, 
you know, more experienced as a playwright, I've become more at peace with the times um, that, that a project has not met the standards I would have wanted. Um, and, uh, but that hasn't stopped me trying and hasn't sort of stopped the thrill of that, um, that effort, um, which is true now in, in, for me in screenwriting and, and theatre writing. Hmm. So now in your career, is there, is it a conscious decision to put some risk into your work, or does that come naturally? Like when you're just talking about, you know, yeah, well, the risk the is in, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like it needs to every. It's just what we want from a night in the theatre. Like what is satisfying in a night in the theatre? We want we want to have a really entertaining night. The things that entertain us are, 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 are many and varied, but they must be something that's thought provoking. I think as well as that, there must be a new expression of those things. There has to be um, a new combination of form and content in every play so that it, it, it needs to feel novel. Mm. And, um, and, and that in itself is, is, is risky. But yes, it must be um, pushing us um, politically and pushing us to ask difficult questions about our existence absolutely that, i think that's what amounts to an entertaining night in the theater and along the way it has to be fun it has to make us laugh and it might even horrify us uh it can do many things but um yeah it feels like that's the task and so during we're all in this well coming out of this period of of isolation and artists have been hit pretty hard like many people yeah has yes this this time highlighted any pre-existing problems in, in how the government funds arts? Yes, absolutely, because it's reminded us that they absolutely neglect the arts and that I think they've had a very easy ride here. You look at things like the ABC announcing that they found $5 million. I understand that $5 million is, is saved from money from um, staff not travelling at the moment. $5 million will not go very far in screen development or production for Australian television. But when I see that pop up, uh, on Facebook or wherever else, it reads as though the government has written a new check for $5 million. Mm. They haven't. It's savings from elsewhere. And then mm. the same thing happened at the Australia Council. Another $5 million, not new money, redirected funds that are very necessary as a kind of rescue right now. And again, $5 million will not go far enough. And this crisis has covered up the, what was already underway we know about these relentless cuts of the ABC, the complete erosion of, of their ability to develop drama. Uh, and then, uh, that. but what has been covered up now, because we're, we're worried about the, the COVID stuff, there's this sort of guise over what was already going on. And that was this uh, removal of funds from the Australia Council year by year. And we missed it. But a whole mm. bunch of small to medium companies across the arts missed out on triennial funding. It doesn't make the news because there's too, other, too many other things crowding the news. Mm. But that neglect, that ongoing devaluing of the arts in this country by the current government has been, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's stupid. It's just straight, plain stupid. Because mm. what is it doing? It's attacking an industry that makes a very big contribution to yeah, the economy. Over $100 billion It's attacking the opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and so even if you're an economic rationalist, surely you can be objective enough to look at this as jobs and tourism, things that we're going to need as we rebuild the economy. 
And, and that's what the arts does. These are co- the companies that missed out will be those companies that do things for regional Australia. They'll be doing things for the future. They'll be, they're, they're the sort of company that create the future professional artists and they have been stripped of their funding. So we've missed out. Then there's this other ridiculous, ridiculous policy change that's just happened in Screen where the um, local, um, the quotas for the local television production have been suspended under the guise of COVID. Well, I just think COVID is an excuse for that because we know that they have been wanting to let the the traditional broadcasters off for a long time. That That's always been their wish to let the free market decide what gets made in Australia. They don't value the Australian voice. The government doesn't value um, local culture because if they did, they would have mechanisms to compel Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus and the others to make local content. I don't think that's that difficult. Those companies are generating a lot of revenue in Australia. Tax that revenue, put it in a fund that they then have to apply to for production. They'll see it as their money. How is that? I mean, look, it just seems easy to, easy to me because I don't understand the bigger ramifications, but at least that's a start of a kind of yep. policy that might work. Because at the moment, those big companies are making a lot of money out of Australia. And unless they're compelled to make local content, they won't. To suspend the requirements of the traditional broadcasters, Channel 10, Channel 9, Channel 7, uh, under the guise of COVID, just stops the job prospects of everybody that is waiting now, very skilled professionals, waiting for that moment when they can come out of lockdown and go into production. And that opportunity will be missed. Mm. Um, we need if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna tell Channel Seven, Channel Ten, Channel Nine, they they don't have to make local content. Well, I think that's terrible. But oh well. At least on the same day, announce your policy, come up with a solution that means that Netflix and the others do have to, because otherwise you will just you'll, you'll just kill this industry. It relies mm. on local content. Yeah, and part of that frustration is it's not as though the skills to create those shows and plays and productions is lacking. Absolutely. We keep on having to prove ourselves. You know, the one thing that I that I am noticing and appreciate in the conversations around COVID, which I think is valuable, and I hope this sticks, is that it has made people talk about the arts as an industry. When people talk about, and I think there is genuine concern in the community um, that, because it's so obvious when you look at COVID, you can't open a theatre, you can't have a cinema, you can't go into television production or film production at the moment. So it's so obvious that the arts is suffering. The arts relies on being able to congregate. It's obvious that by closing the theatre during the plague, we're going to suffer. The public are very aware of that. And I like that in the conversation around it, at least, people are talking about us as an industry. They're talking about us as workers. You know, we, we missed out on, on um, having the proper support from the government with JobKeeper. We didn't quite count enough. But I think even though the government might speak about the arts in this country as some extravagance, they may, may regard it as some luxury, some add-on. I think the general public are talking about us now as something that is integral to our society, something that is a very important um, product of a healthy society and something that is very necessary and quite simply economically is an employer. 
we get, there's a lot of workers in the arts and I mm. like the way that we're talking about it in that regard. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And just on that, was there an area that you noticed was suffering before COVID-19 more, you know, was, was TV, Australian TV, the thing that was already really suffering before all of, all of these lockdowns came into place? Well, there's a long-standing agenda to leave it to the free market and to get rid of local content. And now they've found their excuse and right. they're saying that that will be, you know, that may not be restored next year, even when things uh, are not in the current lockdown, that they will maintain that policy. Um, so that, that has been on the cards for a long time. Um, yes. And I think the, the attacks on the, the small to medium part of the sector has been something that's been an ongoing problem. Uh, I think that's sometimes the way that politicians look to the arts. They want to build, build venues. You know, um, the state government in New South Wales has been doing that a lot. A lot. They, they, and they, that's great. There is some money being invested into infrastructure at the moment that is really welcome. And we're renovating theatres and building them at the moment. Well, that's wonderful. But those facilities cannot operate unless you fund the artists to create work in them. And it's very well that, I guess, in an electorate, you want the, the, the people, the citizens, to see something from the road. There's a building, some proof of our, of our dedication and spend. It's useless unless those people are encouraged to come in the doors. And when they come in the doors, they'll find working artists creating things. Mm. Um, you must fund the ongoing creation of work and also the ongoing training of new artists. And just on some of those, the grants, we're talking about the Australian Council for the Arts that they've put together or, or you know, shifted from other areas. Is that, has that something you've looked into for yourself or felt that you needed to apply for a grant or what's that process been like for you? Well, I mean, as a, as a working artist in Australia over the years, I've certainly benefited from um, the Australia Council. You know, the, the, I think of all those companies that I've worked for um, that, uh, uh, you know, will be recipients of, of grants. And I think back to the beginning of my uh, career where I was starting in places like um, the Australian Theatre for Young People who have recently mm -hmm. missed out on their triennial funding or the Canberra Youth Theatre where I got my early training. Uh, and, um, and, and that company also is now, yep. you know, fighting much for any, Yeah, any youth company has been thrown under the bus. Yeah, so, yes, over the years, I definitely have benefited from it. And I, I wonder if um, a playwright starting out now as I was, I, I don't think they would benefit from um, the same security that some of those companies had at that time. Uh, and I think that's, that's, you know, a great shame. I think that, that a lot of, for a lot of working artists, the training that comes early in their years, in their careers, is, is in, often in regional Australia and it's often those smaller companies um, and, and they're the ones who are under attack. Um, the theatre companies that I work for have increasingly uh, over the years had to go to um, philanthropy uh, for, their, um, for their, their money. And, you, you know, there are big questions to ask about what comes with those checks. Uh, what I would, you know, I, 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 it's worth asking as others have asked um you know whether the people sitting on the boards of theater companies uh, are sometimes there seeking to exercise 
more than the appropriate um, um, control. Uh, and, you know, even, even some people who give money, um, it takes a lot of effort for the companies, I think, to manage the expectations of what those gifts are. Mm. So I don't think it's wholly appropriate for arts companies to be, um, you know, answering to big business or to the rich. Uh, it, it's, I think it's just a function of... It's just necessary in our society that there is some there is appropriate government subsidy for the arts, and that's true of the other rich nations around the world. It's just the way that that um, is an appropriate way for government to spend its money on community projects. And just in closing, I wanted to ask if there's any a couple of things of just advice that you would give to someone starting out as a writer or director. What would you say to someone in that situation? I think I'd remind them that the arts requires resilience and that a big part of resilience is self-compassion. Um, I think as a writer, you um, have to have a very strong critical voice. You have to be able to be, um, you have to scrutinise your work. You have to check that it's not self-indulgent. You have to check that you have the appropriate amount of rigour to make that crack a night in the theatre that you're striving to create. But um, that voice can get loud and Mm -hmm. too loud sometimes and that, you know, you have to be um, good to yourself. And I think that, you know, as you uh, spend more time in your career, you start to, to test, you, you start to, um, I think you trust your expertise, uh, but you also keep um, the appropriate uh, critical voice and perspective and rigour on your work. Um, I think as well as that, a big key to, to it all is your collaborations. And so I would encourage any young writer to seek out and to value mentorship that they find and to also value their collaborators. Uh, I think we're all as good as our collaborate, our collaborations. Um, and it's really important to nurture those relationships and value them. Fantastic. Well, Tommy Murphy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. It's good to chat. Yeah, it was great chatting and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Great. Thanks so much. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you like and follow Adam Deer on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And join me next week on Creative Connections.